0: We're in 1 Kings, we're going to be traversing through chapters 18 and 19, the last couple verses of chapter 18 that is, uh, and going into chapter 19, uh, and I, <laughs> I, I think last week... <clears throat> I was approaching the, quote, contest at Mount Carmel with a lot of excitement, with a lot of just sort of angst and tension because of all of what's going to happen at that particular event, the very momentous miracle that happens. But actually, as I've been studying this particular chapter... Uh, Chapter 19, it actually gets me more excited for uh, the truth of God's word to come out in this particular way in this chapter than actually in the ways that it did in the previous chapter. And I hope that it will come across uh, because actually just thinking about what happens, and as I was studying and as I was reading this, all of these, you know, it's really cool when the Holy Spirit just brings things to your mind, and all of these amazing truths were coming uh, to the surface, so to speak, and I'm I'm just really excited to hopefully uh, bring that to bear this morning. Um, in a way, chapter 19, I think, has a bad rap, uh, only because... Uh, oftentimes the prophet Elijah is uh, mostly sort of pigeonholed into being this really like psychoanalyzed uh, manic depressive. Uh, and oftentimes, that's how we caricature Elijah in this particular scene. He receives his threats from the queen after the amazing victory at Carmel, and then he runs away, and he, and he goes away, and he cries for God to basically just take his life away and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm not saying that that's not true. There's a lots of themes of disappointment and disillusionment, and yes, I would say even depression here in this chapter, but I think... What I have gleaned out of studying this chapter for several days, that I think that this particular passage, chapter 19, is far less about a prophet's apparent despair than it is about God's very unexpected deliverance. And maybe if you've been in this church for a while, you're like, oh, we're going to hear that same message again about God delivering people in an unexpected way. And you're like, haven't you done that enough? (laughs) Maybe, Uh, but uh, I think also that you'll find that that's basically the theme of the Bible. (laughs) That's basically God loves to surprise people in his deliverance. That's basically what grace is it's the surprising outcome uh, of something that where you expected something to happen and then it happens in a completely different way and that's what God loves doing his the all of these pages of scripture are basically God delighting to surprise people in the ways that he delivers them and rescues them it's basically a book about grace and I think this sort of This tendency of God to sort of bring about his almighty purposes, his sovereign plans through very surprising means and and surprising ways is nowhere better seen than in this passage, especially uh, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 19. So let's get there. We're going to break it down into three little scenes that I think we see out of the prophet Elijah. Firstly, at the end of chapter 18, I want to focus on these verses for just a few minutes because of what they sort of set us up for in the next chapter. Here I think we see Elijah's burden. Uh, Elijah's, oh, I messed up the screen here, I'm sorry. Elijah's burden. That we see here uh, as uh, we have this great victory at Carmel. This great amazing moment where God is proven. He's shown to be who he is. He is the God. Remember, the he, he prays a very calm, deliberate prayer. The fireball comes and consumes the entire altar. And not just the entire altar, all of the water that had trickled off into the trough surrounding it too. Everything was consumed. It was an amazing moment where God was just so clearly seen. And then the best possible outcome occurs with all of the people of Israel confessing, look at verse 39, confessing that yes, Yahweh is the God. And when the people saw, saw it, they saw this fire fall and they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the God. They are Seemingly convicted, seemingly contrite, seemingly going exactly where uh, Elijah was wanting them to go, exactly where he was hoping to usher them and lead them. Then, of course, we have that moment of judgment that's brought upon the prophets of Baal by Elijah's hand in verse 40. But then, notice verse 41, because here Elijah, after this victory, he proceeds to tell Ahab that he hears the sound of rain coming. Remember, this is three years since uh, Elijah first proclaimed that famine wasn't going to come. It's three years since that date, three years of famine. 3 years of drought 3 years of hardship and so notice verse 41 and Elijah said unto Ahab get thee up eat and drink for there is a sound of abundance of rain he's telling Ahab go ahead uh, go ahead and celebrate the lord's provision because i hear rain on the horizon which is an interesting fact but also notice verse 42 because as Ahab goes up i don't think he was told twice he goes up to the mountain to eat and drink and celebrate Yahweh's provision and Elijah goes up even further to the top of Carmel as it says and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees he's going up to pray Elijah is going up to petition the Lord to bring about what he has just prophesied about isn't that very interesting He uh, tells uh, Ahab to, uh, you have the green light to celebrate what God is going to bring about. And then he goes even further and begins to pray to God that he would bring about what he has just prophesied that God would bring about. (laughs) It's a very curious uh, sort of moving of events. But I think what it, to me, it demonstrates so clearly is just that what we've already seen, especially in chapter 17, that Elijah was not some super prophet. He's often caricatured like that. He's often characterized as this guy who was so close to God. And then we have this chapter that we're going to get to in chapter 19. And he falls so far away into this depression and this defeatism mode. But I think here we clearly see that Elijah was human. He couldn't snap his fingers and bring about God's will. He couldn't uh, say abracadabra and bring rain. He couldn't do a sort of magical dance and, and have these storms come about. He prays to the Lord because he is just like you and me. He is a human who is dependent upon the Lord's mercy. That's what he's demonstrating. And also, I think it's demonstrating exactly what we've already seen before. If you remember, remember in chapter 17 where the widow's son, he dies. He passes away very suddenly. And what does Elijah do? He brings the boy's body up to his room and he prays over him. Actually, it says that he lays his whole body over that boy and prays that God's life would come back into him. And here we see a similar sort of action on behalf of the prophet Elijah, actually laying prostrate on the ground with his face between his knees and saying, God, bring the rain. Do what you said that you were going to do. He is clearly a man who is dependent and reliant on someone other than himself. He's evidencing his humanity. I think also evidencing uh, just how heavy the burden of Israel weighed on him. As we've... Sort of noted before, he has been weighed down with this commission to bring the message of revival back to Israel. And here is the message of revival through judgment. And now he's saying that, uh, that with this rain coming back, that it would signal sort of the sounds of blessing returning to Israelite soil. And here you can see just how heavy that burden was on him. God has proven himself. He's shown himself in the fire. And so now he, I think, is sort of hoping, praying, that God would bring forth this movement of renewal to the people of Israel. Notice verse 43. Because while he's praying, though, something very curious happens. And he said to his servant, Elijah said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. So as Elijah's praying, he sends one of his aides, go up to the top, go to the very summit of Carmel, and go and see if there is a sign of rain coming. And curiously, nothing is on the horizon. In fact, he goes up six more times. As it says, Elijah says, go again seven times. Goes up, nothing. Goes up again, nothing. Goes up several more times, nothing. And then verse forty four, and it came to pass at the seventh time, the seventh journey up to the top of Carmel, that uh, uh, where am I? There we <laughs> the seventh time that he said the, the servant, Behold, there riseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Very curious. A a curiously very positive report. There is clouds but it's as small as a man's hand. It's a wisp of a cloud on the horizon. He says go tell Ahab that this is the Lord's blessing coming back. Because notice verse 45. That wisp of a cloud It turns into a thunderhead. Look at verse 45. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And here the rain comes back. The rain that had been so long gone that had caused so much heartache and grief and anguish and despair and so much gripping at things. Yes, now it is coming back. The Lord's word was true. Yahweh was true. Remember verse 1 of chapter 18. What does God say? At the end, I will send rain upon the earth. And here he's living up to his word, doing exactly as he said he would, bringing rain back to Israelite earth. And it would appear then that Israel was now in God's favor again. This burden that was weighing down on Elijah is seemingly now lifted. Obviously this rain is indicative of favor returning to God's people. I think Elijah seemingly uh, understood it that way. That's why I think we get this really interesting uh, sort of note in verse 46 where it says, "...in the hand of the Lord was on Elijah." And he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Ahab and his whole motley crew, they're going down the mountain, they're leaving uh, sort of Carmel and going back to Jezreel, sort of this summer palace that he and Jezebel had. And uh, while that's occurring, uh, Elijah is, as it appears, he's possessed of the spirit and runs ahead of the chariot. (laughs) He runs even faster back to the kingdom. This is a very curious detail and there's lots of different ways you can go about interpreting it. I kind of think it's a clue into Elijah's mindset. He is anxious to see if what Carmel proved would be proven true in the lives of the people. That Yahweh is the God, if that would lead into all of Israel being swept up into reform and revival and going back to where they should be, repenting and confessing the one true God. Maybe I'm surmising, but I think that's what's happening. He's running back to see if all of those things that he had been burdened down by would be proven true. That Elijah would see Yahweh move on his people. But, just like the rain didn't come to the seventh time, God operates according to his timetable. That's sometimes the most frustrating thing that we can have to confess That God's timing is is different than ours. That God's sort of schedule is often way different than how we would schedule our lives. And I think what we're going to see is that's exactly true with Elijah. He gets frustrated with God's timing. With God's schedule of events. Because uh, nextly we have to see just that in the first couple verses of chapter 19. Elijah's burden. But also notice in chapter 19 Elijah's brokenness. Because upon returning to the palace, Ahab eventually uh, sort of convenes with his wife, Jezebel, and tells her all that's gone on. Verse 1 of chapter 19, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Now I don't know if this is meant to give us a clue into the power structure of Israel. (laughs) Ahab answering to Jezebel, I'm not going to comment on who was wearing the pants in Israel this time. Some commentators like to say that. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe Jezebel was more authoritative. (laughs) You can see exactly what happens in the next verse. That her rage seeps out and actually strikes Elijah in the soul. (laughs) In the nerve, we could say. But regardless, Ahab comes, reports all of those prophets are dead. Elijah has slain them. And Jezebel is obviously enraged she sends a messenger verse 2 unto Elijah saying so let the gods do to me now and more also if I may not make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time She's swearing to the gods that I'm going to kill you. And if I don't kill you, let the gods kill me. I'm going to make your life a living hell is what Jezebel is sort of trying to strike fear into the heart of Elijah. All those things that you did to the prophets of Baal, I'm going to do to you. And this is the word that breaks Elijah. That much is clear. Look at verse 3. And when he saw that. That's an interesting phrase, so keep that in your head. He arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. He departs. He flees. He's running for his life, as it says there, as it says he went for his life and he goes to none other than Beersheba, which as I love that the historian includes this for us, it belongeth to Judah. He runs into the next kingdom. He's trying to get as far away as he can out of Jezebel's jurisdiction. In fact, this is about 100 miles south. That's how far away he's going. <laughs> Getting out of Dodge. Getting out of where he is. Trying to get out of harm's way. Now many like to say that this is because he has just been struck with a severe bout of depression. And if you read verse 4, I think there's a pretty good case for that. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He's going alone, that's curious. And came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. It's enough. He goes on his own. He goes away. He goes into the wilderness, leaves behind his servant, leaves behind his helpers, or anyone that was uh, tagging along with him. And he just sits down under a tree and starts crying, God, I'm spent. That's, I think, what he's. Confessing, I've had my fill, God. I've had enough of these people. I've had all that I can take of them. Just let me die. Just take me out of this life. And I don't think, though, that's because he's necessarily depressed. Maybe. But I think that phrase, verse 3, when he saw that. Not, I think, the threat of death. I think what he's seeing is the very fact that those events at Carmel weren't going to have the effect that he thought. Remember, he's coming back to Israel with this thought that God is going to sweep this kingdom with reform. And that Carmel proves that. Yahweh, he is the God. Everyone's confessing that. How can you not see this? When he gets back, what is he met with? We're going to kill you. (laughs) doesn't matter what happened at Carmel. We don't care as Jezebel's actions and attitudes toward him. We don't sort of have any sort of care or worry about your God. We're going to make you and make all of the people that follow you uh, into examples of our cruelty. We are going to take away your life is what Jezebel threatens him with. You can see now the disillusionment, yes, of this prophet who was commissioned to go back to Israel to preach the Lord's word and is seemingly having no effect. It is enough. I've done all I can do, Yahweh. Why would you keep sending me to these people? I can't bring them back into the ages of my fathers. Let me die. Take away my life. I've I've had enough of it. I think that's Elijah's mindset. But of course, God doesn't leave him there. Because as we know, God delights in meeting broken people in the midst of their brokenness. And this is exactly what he does in this instance. Notice verse 5. He's laying and sleeping and crying under a juniper tree, it says. And behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. This angel comes to him and nourishes him, provides for him, and is meeting his needs. And then, in verse 7, this angel comes a second time. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. So he rises and eats, verse 8, and he rose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. He brings him to this specific mountain and it's here, as we're going to get to in just a moment, that Elijah is going to be given a, a thorough vision of the almighty work that's actually at work. He's going to be given way more than he ever bargained for by going on this little excursion to Horeb. But I want to take a moment and note. In Elijah's brokenness, who ministers to him? Who actually is meeting his needs as the prophet is in his brokenness, in his desperation? It's right there in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord... It's Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew, we could say, which is none other than God's only begotten Son in pre incarnate form, coming as a messenger of the heavenlies down to meet this prophet in his brokenness. You can see this all throughout the Old Testament. There's so many cool instances where it's translated the angel of the Lord. It's Malach Yahweh. It's. The second person of the trilogy, Trinity, the, the Son of God in a visible form. We could call it a Christophany, that's the big theological word. <laughs> it's one of those really cool, striking moments where God Himself, before His Son takes human form in Luke chapter 2, <laughs> before that, He actually inserts Himself into the narrative of history. He's actually intercutting all of the movements of history, and he's proving, I think, and showing that God is unafraid of the brokenness of humanity. And he comes and he meets this prophet's needs, tends to his sort of wounded soul, and shows mercy to him. There's no mess. That Moloch, Yahweh, will not uh, sort of uh, be scared of enough to intervene and mediate his desired ends. Such here. He intervenes the prophet's brokenness and meets his need. A friend of mine calls this a dress rehearsal for the incarnation. (laughs) And in fact, that there's several of these throughout the Old Testament. There's several we could go to, just you know, Daniel three, Joshua chapter five, Exodus three—the dress rehearsals of the incarnation, where Yahweh takes visible form. And this is one of those instances. And it proves one thing that I think is so powerful that that reaches out through all of the ages. That Yahweh is a God who meets people right where they are. Not after they get better, not after they do a certain number of things, not after they put a number of practices into practice very good, very faithfully, very well. He meets people in the midst of their mess, in their brokenness, in their heartache, in the ashes, in the dust of lives that have been crumbled. That's where he meets people. That's where he delights to do his quote best work. That's where he goes to give the word of the Lord. Maybe you've felt that in your life, as your as your life is seemingly like like shattered glass in your hand and you're you're picking up all the pieces. God meets us there. Moloch, Yahweh, is unafraid of those moments and he comes and meets this prophet in his broken state. Precisely because his overriding concern as Yahweh is all about his people's renewal. That's what he's all about. That's what he is, uh, his overriding concern throughout all of history has been to bring people back into the peace of Eden, back into the fellowship and harmony and joy that our first parents enjoyed in that garden. That's what it's been about reclaiming. And here, despite how far Israel had gone into rebellion and rejection, notice who is showing up proving that for however much they rejected him, he had not rejected them. This God, Yahweh, comes and he shows and proves that there's nothing that is so broken that he cannot repair it. Even, yes, a shattered kingdom that had fallen into false worship and that had gone the way of Baal. Even that Was not too much for this God. And to prove that. That's where we get to lastly this morning. Elijah's blessing. Elijah's burden. Elijah's brokenness. And Elijah's blessing. Notice verse number 9. Because this this is just where things get really cool. Really good. And let me just say too. That some commentators... Like to say that this journey that the angel mentions isn't supposed to be to Horeb. So go back to verse 8 as he says. And he arose and did drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb the mount of God. Some who like to I think color this whole thing as a very manic depressive chapter. uh, Like to say that he's going even further to a place where he shouldn't have been. And that actually he was supposed to take that strength and that meat and go back to Israel and confront Jezebel in the face. I don't know, I strongly disagree with that. I think actually this is exactly where the angel wanted him to go. As it says there, he went in the strength of that meat 40 days unto Horeb. I think he's going exactly where God wants him to be because this nourishment takes him to this place, Horeb. Where God is going to reveal himself in one of the most spectacular ways possible. When we say that name, Horeb, the little hairs in the back of your neck ought to stand on end. That's how significant this site is. How important this location is. It's the generic name for Sinai. A.K.A. the place, the mountainous region where God established his covenant with Moses and all of the people of Israel ages before this specific moment. But not only that, if that's not even just cool enough that he's taking him back to Sinai in the region of the covenant. He's taking him back to the exact same spot. Look at verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. It's not just a cave in the mountains. A better way to translate this is the cave with a definite article. Harkening back to Exodus chapter 33. Where Moses is taken as it says there in verse 22. The cleft of the rock. And who passes by? None other than God's glory invisible form. Actually let's just go there. Just, I'm just referencing it. You should just see it. Because it's cooler that way. Exodus 33. This cave. Not just random cave in the mountains look at verse 21 and it says and the Lord said this is to Moses now behold there is a place by me and thou shalt stand upon a rock and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock or a cave and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by and I will take away mine hand and thou shalt see my back parts but my face shall not be seen why because he's too full of glory And here, hundreds of years later, in this same cave, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And he came thither unto the cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, another curious thing. Most of the commentators and people who are parsing the Bible and when they say that Elijah is not where he's supposed to be that he should be back in Israel and when, so now he's in Horb, he's in a different place they would say that they read this question as rebuke what in the world are you doing here? but I, I, actually, I actually don't think that this, that's what God is wanting him to sort of ask himself I don't think God's rebuking Elijah with this question He's not trying to stir him out of his depression or anything like that. Actually, I think he he wants Elijah to honestly answer this question, more of like, why do you think I brought you here? Why are you here, Elijah? Why do you think I brought you to this place? He's wanting Elijah to vent. <laughs> He's encouraging the prophet to unload his grief and his burdens and his brokenness. And notice what happens. That's exactly what happens because I think Elijah is perhaps, again, broken and disillusioned. And he is not really, God, I don't know why he brought me to this cold, dank, damp cave. Why are we here? And he said, I've been very jealous. For the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. They seek my life to take it. God, you commissioned me to do this, and now I'm the only one left, and they want to get rid of me. They want to take away my life. They want to kill me. His disappointment is brought on because the people have abandoned the Lord of hosts. As he says there, they've forgotten you and your covenant. And in his mind, he's done all he could Think about his ministry up to this point. He's done all he could to bring them back. What more can I do, Yahweh? It is enough. I've had enough. <laughs> and as he's confessing this just weighed down soul that he has, <laughs> notice what happens. Verse 11, God, Yahweh says to him, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and brake in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. He brings him to the mouth of the cave and says, watch this. And then all of these amazing, spectacular displays of power come onto the scene. Uh, A strong and violent wind, a very earth-shattering earthquake, and then a fire from heaven comes before his face. And yet it is noted that Yahweh's presence wasn't in any of those things. It's not until after all those things pass and dissipate out of the air that Elijah hears a still small voice and that's where Yahweh was found. That still small voice shows up to show that in contrast to the the bombastic and the spectacular that God shows up in a calm low articulate word. And we know it's Yahweh because notice Elijah's response, verse 13. And it was so when Elijah heard it, heard the voice, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. By the way, exactly the same reaction that Moses had back in Exodus 33 and 34. He covers himself because of the glory that was on the scene. That was in that place. The voice of Yahweh greeted Elijah in that cave in Horeb. The same voice. Which spoke to Moses in that burning bush back in Exodus 3. The same voice that walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. Is the same voice that shows up right here in this, this dark night. This midnight of the soul as we could say of the prophet of God. It's a still small voice that is none other than the brightness of Yahweh's glory. And the express image of Yahweh's person as Hebrews says. The voice of God shows up. And he presses Elijah again. Why do you think I brought you here? And there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here?" And Elijah basically repeats the same complaint from before. As in verse 10, you'll notice verse 14 is almost exactly the same. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. But this time, instead of responding to that burden with theatrics, we might say, the voice of the Lord, Yahweh's voice, just it spells out in plain words exactly what his plan is. Notice verse 15. And the Lord Yahweh said unto him, Go, return thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Eloha, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And then it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael and Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not been kissed him. There were kings to be anointed, Elijah. There were prophets to be ordained. There is a faithful remnant to me that needs your tending, that needs your ministering. There is more work to be accomplished all of which suggest i think that god's work in and with the people of israel was not going to conclude with elijah you you see that's kind of where elijah's mindset is the work of god has come to its end i can't bring israel any further down the road of a new renewal i've had enough and god says there's more going on than what you see elijah not finished with this people you may have been finished with them but I'm not you may have been done with them but I'm not Yahweh is saying to him he wasn't done doing wonderful accomplishments through his people and guess what God is not done with this country he's not done with his church and he's not done with you in the pews this morning You may be like Elijah and say, I've had enough of this. I think there's enough reason to say that you can say that. Enough evidence. You know who's not done accomplishing wonders in and with his faithful remnant? It's Yahweh alone. He's not done accomplishing marvels through people who bow the knee before him in reverence and honor and deference. He is not done doing a mighty work through people who proclaim the name that Yahweh alone is the God. Sometimes that's hard to see. Is it hard to see that God's kingdom is coming true right now? I feel like I've said that before, and I I have. (laughs) You go back a couple months ago, and some other scandal was in the news, and we could be saying the same thing. Sometimes it's really hard to believe that the kingdom of God is coming. How in the world could it come into such a mess like this? How could it be true? Sometimes I think the work of God is very hard to see. Maybe like a wisp of a cloud on a horizon. Sometimes the work of the Lord is very hard to hear like a still small voice. But there's one thing that we can be sure of, no matter how far we get in this life, no matter how God takes us, where God takes us, what God shows us, what God allows us to endure, that the work of God through the word of God is always working. It's all around us. He can take a wisp of a cloud and turn it into a thunderhead. He can take a mustard seed, as he says in Matthew 13, and turn it into the kingdom of God. He can take a nobody carpenter's son from Nazareth and have him lifted up and exalted as the savior and king of the world. This is what God does. He subverts our notions of deliverance and accomplishment and says, I am always working, even if you can't see it, even if you can't hear it. His kingdom is coming about. And the good thing is, guess what? You aren't burdened with making it happen. You're just having the awesome opportunity to proclaim that it's true. You know, that's what our job is as witnesses. We don't have to make the kingdom. We just get to proclaim it. There is a king who is coming. His name is Jesus. Moloch Yahweh. This, I think, is what this whole scene has been bringing us towards. I'm almost done, I promise. I can't help. I can't help but think of this. Trying to show us the sort of the way that Jesus subverts notions of how the kingdom is accomplished in our world. Just think about it. Go back to, you don't have to turn there, but read Exodus 33 and 34. Moses is in the Sinai. He's in Horeb, you could say. And the Lord passes by. And then in Exodus 34, 4 through 6, let's say, uh, I think those are the verses. He hears a declaration of God's grace and truth. Elijah, he is in Horeb, a.k.a. Sinai, and he sees the Lord pass by, and then he hears a declaration of God's grace and truth. And who do we know is the fulfillment and the embodiment of God's grace and truth? It is Christ alone. And guess, I, just, I almost shuddered when I was stumbling upon this in my studies this week. Who shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. These two guys who were brought into the cleft of rock to see God's glory. Although they couldn't, they had to shield their eyes from it. They are ones who witnessed the transfigured incarnate word. That sounded like a still small voice. It was meant to show us exactly what God does throughout all of history. He works even when we can't see it. He accomplishes his one and holy purpose even when we can't hear it. The stillness and smallness of Yahweh's voice, I think, is meant to be indicative of Yahweh's son and his ministry. As it says in Matthew 11, that he would be one who is gentle and lowly. He would come and change the world through meekness, through kindness, and ultimately through death. Can anything be more subverting than that? Can anything uh, sort of upset and surprise than the fact that you want to change the world? You have to die. You want to make a name for yourself? Die first. And that's what Jesus says to his apostles, remember? Take up your cross and follow me and die daily. (laughs) You see, this is the amazing blessing that Elijah and Moses had. They saw this beaming brightness of, of Yahweh's glory. And yet, you don't have to turn there, but just think about this in conjunction with all this. Whereas they had to cover their faces because of that glory. They couldn't look it in the face. Second Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Hath shined in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. You and I this morning by faith. We can look That glorious Lord passing by in the eyes. Because it's Jesus Christ. The voice of Yahweh come in the flesh to show us that his kingdom is true. He alone is God and all other things must bow before him. As Heather was saying this morning, that awesome passage in Philippians 2. At every name, every name in heaven above and on earth below will bow at the name of this one. Moloch, Yahweh, the only God and the only king of kings. Let us bow our heads and pray.